men and women in their evening wear stroll the promenade of one of the best Gilded Age transport ships cruising from the Americas over to England. But this is not a peaceful time. The Great War has erupted, and there are thoughts on what these ships really mean. The Imperial German Navy lurks, waiting, knowing that these ships could be civilian or could be military. Hard to tell in the murky deeps. Usually a U-boat will arise and ask for the surrender of a ship, but one U-boat in the middle of a distressful moment sees a ship and fires off a volley of its torpedoes, blowing the ship to the bottom of the sea, plummeting its nicely dressed passengers with it. A young woman in a white nightgown floats in the ocean as we see a poster on the walls of buildings all around London titled Enlist. This is the story of the Lusitania and the brutal life of the convoys and U-boats that fought across the Atlantic during World War I. Hello and welcome back to the Cleocast. This is episode 9 on the Lusitania and U-boat warfare in World War I. I'm RC. And I'm Matt. And I think we're just going to get right into it. At the turn of the century, as the 1800s passed, new naval technology was out and open. The British Navy had built the Dreadnought, and that destroyed any semblance of naval superiority the British Empire had. Now, all the other competing European empires had to do to pass or meet the power of the British Navy and the British Empire was build similar ships like this Dreadnought. But the Dreadnought had a pretty weak spot when it came to its power and prestige on the sea. And that is something that was really popular in the German Navy called the U-boat. In our series on the Battle of Hampton Roads, we did go into a bit of naval history, and we talked about the Monitor. Now, the Monitor had uh, caused two different ideas of thought that developed where you could build these large metal ships as these great battleships that could have shells bounce off it, but because it was so low to the ground, another school of thought became in play where we could, you know, submerge the ship and have it rise back up, use the ocean to its advantage and use its low slung sea line that it has to its advantage against other ships. So as these armies and navies develop more and more, the German Imperial Army and Navy, who recently was united uh, after the Franco-Prussian War in the 1870s, was looking to get into the game empire-wise as well. With the military prowess of Prussia, which was a very small state that could hit above its weight with military prowess, and a small group of uh, coastal German states, which brought some naval tradition but not very much, the new German Empire had a little chip on its shoulders when it came to what it was in the European scene. 
France was the premier land power for hundreds of years in Europe. And the British have taken over the seas with the Royal Navy. Both forged empires that spanned Africa and Asia and all across the Americas, whether you know colonies revolt or not. Uh, these great powers stand and show the economic benefits of these empires. Germany wanted in, but that's a problem because you need to be respected and it's hard to catch up on these things. So when the dreadnought is built, the Germans see an opportunity to also catch up by building these similar ships like the dreadnought, but also have a U-boat program which can hit the British Isles hard. The British Isles are an island and they need to be supplied. So if they were going to go to war, they would have the ability to strangle the island. These are the thoughts that went through military planners' heads before World War I. It was a time of peace, but there was tensions rising between the parties as alliances interweaved each other throughout Europe. The Russians recently lost a war to the Japanese who were recent in the Russo-Japanese War of 1902 and really showed the weakness of the Russian Navy, uh, which was now obliterated. And also, uh, all of the rulers knew each other because they were cousins between good old Nicholas II, Kaiser Wilhelm II, or George V. They all were related, and they do look similar. All grandchildren of Queen Victoria, the person who established the Pax Britannia. But these new rulers were going to boil over into one of the most brutal wars on land and on sea in their time. Britain and France as the two premier empires never really got along throughout their entire history. Despite this, though, you'd figure Britain or France would use this new German state to the advantage, you know, leveraging this third power against one of the other ones that they hated. But instead, while dealing in Africa with their colonies, they signed a treaty basically saying, we're not going to step on each other's toes in Africa. This is the foundation of the Entente. See, it was never a formal agreement to be an alliance, but it was a kind of softening of the tensions between the two parties. They were both wanting to push down this newcomer, make sure he would, you know, Germany wouldn't be a threat. So they decided, okay, well, the best way to do this is just agree to split Africa the way it is right now, try to force Germany out, and try to not let them rise. Because the German state had always been disunited, and now this new united state scared them. Because in the Franco-Prussian War, France had been defeated. They were the premier land power, and they had been crushed in a few weeks by the German military force. They had taken Alsace and Lorraine from the French. They were scaring the established powers. So this treaty, while well, you know, not being a formal agreement to cooperate, did scare the Germans. They could see the French and the British teaming up against them, and they never felt like they got the respect they deserved. You know, they were a premier power. They had colonies, too. They had this great military. 
They just wanted respect. So Bismarck, he wasn't in charge of Germany, but he was in charge of German foreign policy. Kaiser Wilhelm II's dad just kind of let him take charge of things. And he was, to most accounts, a genius in this regard. He created complicated treaty systems and alliances and helped pretty much drove the reunification of Germany. This was a man that knew what he wanted, and he was driven to get it. He wanted the respect that Germany deserved in his mind. And his treaty systems and alliance systems were aimed to secure Germany's position. He signed a treaty with Russia, basically agreeing, it's the reinsurance treaty, agreeing to not invade each other if Germany were to ever go to war with France. This basically secured the German position because if Russia attacked in the east the same time the French attacked in the west, Russian military planners and Bismarck realized they were screwed. It was a two-front war. They wouldn't have the power to fight off both major powers at once, so they had to make sure that only one could possibly attack them at once. And France was starting to go towards the British, so the Russians were the only logical option. And this was the case for years until Wilhelm died and his son took over. And his son thought he was smart. He was like, I'm the guy. I'm the Kaiser. I know better than Bismarck. He's old. His treaties are too complicated. His alliances are too complex. We need simplicity. So he canned Bismarck and he let these treaties lapse. He's like, we don't need them. They're too complicated. We haven't gone to war with France or Russia so far in the past few decades. Why do we need these? They're not doing anything. So now there's no reinsurance treaty between Russia and Germany. The French are looking at this and saying, oh, well, you know, they're not really uh, formally allied anymore. And this is the stage that the world is in in 1914. It was in 1910, though, where they thought that it would first boil over, but most of the European powers sweated most of the crises that happened in the early 1900s very well. It's never really a major declaration of war. It's always something small and insignificant that really seems quite odd to shoot off some great horrific thing. Whether it is a minor legal disagreement between Julius Caesar and some Roman senators that leads to the destruction of the Roman Republic, or if it's just some Serbian nationalist who just so happened to be in the right place at the right time to shoot the heir to the Austro-Hungarian throne in Sarajevo, which would start one of the bloodiest wars the world had ever seen, it's never really expected, and it just happens, and it happens suddenly. As Austria-Hungary looked to declare war on Serbia to finally get that under control and take revenge for what was done to its heir, as a man who ascended to the throne in this horrible days of the 1840s, Emperor Franz Joseph, He has been on the throne for years and has not really had any major problems when it came to his rule. He sweated a major revolution and established Austria-Hungary as a multinational, multilingual empire that was 
pretty respectable when it came to the Central European powers. He was going to take Serbia, but the Serbs were Slavs who a Nicholas II, the Tsar of Russia, believed himself the defender of all Orthodox Christians and the defender of all Slavs. Nicholas II was pretty bad at everything he tried to do. But at least some credit to his effort and desire to actually be involved. Most rulers, when you think they're bad, just, you know, party or ignore their advisors. But Nicholas tried. Nicholas went to work every single day, and he was going to defend the Slavs and the Orthodox Christians of Europe. This is exactly not what Kaiser Wilhelm II wanted. So he offered a blank check to the Austro-Hungarians to back them up in this situation. But there was also plans to maybe take out France at the same time. They did in 1871. They could do it in 1914. And this is the situation that drags France into the war. And with that, the Germans push through Belgium. A state through all the way back from the Napoleonic Wars had a guarantee from Great Britain to defend it. And the Germans thought that, hey, the British might ignore it. This was made in the early 1800s, 100 years ago. Why would they care about this now? But the British pride would not be stopped. And they went to the defense and aid of Belgium. And such a minor little incident in Sarajevo that killed a a middle-aged man on some side street in Sarajevo caused a cascade of events that led to a bloody, bloody war. But the land and the trenches are what you know. But do you know about the sea and the power of the German Empire's U-boats? You see... When you have these gigantic fleets and you're the underdog and you don't have as big a fleet, but you want to have naval power, you have to come up with alternate means to gain that power. And the idea the Germans had, they didn't invent, but they kind of modernized, was the U-boat. They figured, okay, if we can just get a very powerful explosive secretly to a ship by a torpedo, you know, it goes underwater, then theoretically you can make up for the lack of dreadnoughts by stealth. And these were horrible things to be in. I mean, especially in the early uh, 20th century. They could only be underwater for a few hours. It stunk in there. They didn't have very good, uh, you know, living accommodations. They would be out to sea for weeks Almost no fresh food. They were pretty small to start. And the doctrine didn't really uh, exist at the time for them. I mean, if you get a leak, your buoyancy is, you know, destroyed. You're going to die at the bottom of the ocean with absolutely no hope of rescue. In darkness. Just waiting to suffocate. It was not a fun time. But this is what you need to do if you want to defeat the dreadnoughts. If you want to take control of the seas from the British Imperial Navy, you got to come up with alternate solutions, and this is what they did. 
The thing with U-boats are, the most important thing is, they're incredibly cheap to build compared to other naval vessels. A dreadnought is a monumental investment that costs your economy thousands of dollars, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars, 1902 dollars, 1910 dollars, and it takes years to build. I mean, these things are giant floating cities. They had thousands of staff members. A U-boat cost a hundredth that can be built way faster and only needs about a hundred crew members if it sinks it's not a large investment going under the waves that is going to take you years and thousands and thousands of dollars to replace you can kind of crank these out pretty fast so on a lost scale losing a dreadnought to a u-boat attack is incredibly good for the U-boats. And this dichotomy led to why there's almost no actual naval combat in World War One, aside from the Battle of Jutland, is the British didn't want their ships to get sunk by these U-boats that you can't see. You know, they're stealth, they're underwater, you don't know where they are. And the Germans didn't want to lose their ships to the British fleet, so that's why they sent out the U-boats. So outside of one naval conflict, Jutland, and maybe some minor skirmishes, most of these gigantic, monumental investments of the economies of the past 10, 20 years worth of production just kind of sat gathering dust. Now, I say you don't know where the U-boats are, but the British did know where the U-boats are because they had stolen the German codes for all their radio transmissions because they had to transmit by radio because the British at the outset of the war had cut all their telegraph lines going from North America to Europe. So they were transmitting all their messages wirelessly in code, which the British had. So they were reading all the messages. So they did actually know where the U-boats are. The issue is they didn't have enough boats to cover the entire North Atlantic. They had to pick and choose. And if you sink every single U-boat, the Germans are pretty quickly going to figure out, you know, they seem to know exactly where we are at any given moment. They probably cracked our code. Let's change it. And that's exactly what the British did not want to happen. They wanted to have the advantage in intelligence without revealing that they had the advantage in intelligence. It's a very interesting balance because you have to kind of... You know, okay, we got to let them sink some stuff. We got to sacrifice some lives, but we can't, you know, sacrifice everything. You know, if Churchill's sailing across the Atlantic, we can't let them sink that probably. But it wasn't the magical power of computing that got them the codes like in World War II. In World War One, it is more of a Mission Impossible-esque type event in getting the German code books. The first one to be gotten was the HVB codebook. Men of the Royal Australian Navy burst onto a German-Australian merchant ship called the Hobart, pretending to be customs inspectors. While on the ship inspecting the documents and all of the goods aboard it, the German captain was digging in his little secret hidden chest where he had the code books. The undercover men of the Australian Royal Navy 
saw that, whipped out their pistols, and gave them a simple order. Give us the documents or we blow your brains out. That was how they got the first part of the German code book. The second part of the German code book was actually acquired by the Russians. The Russians were chasing a cruiser which had accidentally exploded during the early part of the war in the Gulf of Finland. The man who was carrying the code book was blown off the deck and killed. The Russians dredged up their body and found the code book. The Russians, who had just lost their navy not even 10 years earlier during the Russo-Japanese War, were, you know, a bit in shock and awe and gave it over to their British allies because they could use it more since they had a navy. The third code book was dumped by a cruiser running away from uh, four British destroyers during the early part of the war. This code discovery started in August and spanned over three months, but that's very quick to get a bunch of code books. And the last code book the British needed was on a German ship that three British cruisers, the HMS Lance, the HMS Lennox, and the HMS Legion, and the HMS Loyal were chasing. And the German ship was dumping documents in order to escape and accidentally, in a chest, put the code book along with some other correspondences. A mere accident by the German Navy would led to the British now having all the German code books and being able to decode without the, the Germans knowing. So with the capture of all the code books, they set up an office, Room 40, in London, and what it did is it took all the intercepted radio communications between German ships uh, and basically mapped where they were at any given moment. You know, U-Boat 42 is right here per their last radio transmission home. You know, U-Boat 272 is right here because the U-Boats would, you know, surface. They were surfaced most of the time, and they would send radio transmissions in code back to Berlin telling them, hey, you know, we're right here. Uh, we're continuing our patrol. We haven't seen any ships. You know, information like that. And that's what the British were doing. Is They were basically just creating a map of every known U-boat. And they would sometimes have to send, you know, ships into the jaws of the U-boat. Because if the German U-boats never got anything, they would get suspicious. Like, hey, you know, we were sinking... 100,000 tons worth of cargo a month ago. Now we're not getting anything. This is weird. So the British basically just picked and chose which ships were doomed. The first Lord of the Admiralty, the head of the naval department for the British, was a man named Winston Churchill. He was appointed in 1911. He was in charge of all of these operations, including Room 40. And he was the one who designated the control and movement of the ships based off of their intel that they get from Room 40. He was the one who was the chief man in charge for making decisions when it came to what ships sank and what ships did not. This is part of a little theory that this podcast has, but we will go into that later. Winston Churchill was the one who was in charge of the Navy 
and was in charge of the Gallipoli campaign. But we were talking about hunting and avoiding the wolf packs of the Imperial German Navy. So now we can talk about the topic at hand. The Lusitania was the fastest steam-powered ship in the world at the time, at least the fastest passenger liner. She could go 24 knots when operating at full speed. She had four steam funnels that belch out black smoke from the coal burners she was operating. Now, 24 knots was the fastest speed she could go for economic reasons, you know, to save money on coal, she wouldn't actually go that fast normally. She would probably go closer to like 18 knots or so. You know, it burns the coal slower. It takes a lot less effort to shovel it. So, but she was a large passenger liner and a big deal. You know, it was the pride of, she was the pride of the Cunard League's passenger service line. She had been constructed in 1904 and launched in 1906 and was doing passenger ferries across the Atlantic for years. She had been successful. She had broken, you know, travel from London to New York records. And altogether, she was a pretty high-profile ship. By the outbreak of the war, she was still doing regular passenger transits. Now, it was not legal for Germany to sink passenger-only lines. It was an agreement that you had to surface your U-boat, wave them down. You know, it was it was the traditional naval for a civilian ships. The naval procedure was you wave them down, you allow them to get on their rowboats, their lifeboats, you allow everyone to evacuate, and then you sink the ship if that's what you need to do. Or you take your boat and then you pull it to harbor. You just seize it. Because if it's not a military ship, you know, you don't really need to sink it. It's not a threat to anyone. It just has a bunch of, you know, tourists or passengers. So that was the established procedure that the British Navy operated on was, you know, you sail your big wooden galleon up and you you take control of the civilian ship and it's going, it's a British ship now. It's in our port. Now, this doesn't work as well with U-boats because U-boats are not gigantic wooden or metal, you know, powerful ships. They're pretty fragile. Oftentimes, when a U-boat would surface and try to, you know, seize, do the established procedure, they would either get shot at by concealed guns the passenger line was carrying for security, or they would just get hit by the passenger liner. I mean, the passenger liners could pretty much hit a U-boat and kind of they were huge ships they could just kind of shrug it off and the u-boat would be doomed to the depths of davy jones locker so this was a very risky maneuver for u-boats to do so they pretty much ended up just not doing them odds are they would signal you know kind of show signs that they were there if they knew it was a civilian boat but the german procedure quickly started to become just just sink them i mean it the British would do with their blockade, you know, their procedure of, oh, we're going to be the noble ship captain, you know, taking control, keeping the civilians safe. But the Germans didn't have that luxury. They were the underdog. They were like, look, we're going to lose all our U-boats if we do this because the British would sneak cannons on and guns, even though they weren't supposed to. So the Lusitania captain in 1914 and 1915 knew that the U-boats would do that. 
but they had a schedule to keep. So they were sailing from New York to London. They weren't going full speed, but they were going fairly fast. They, you know, they want to get their passengers there. The Lusitania made it to the coast of Ireland into the German declared exclusionary zone around the British Isles. You see, the Germans told all neutral nations, if you're going to try to trade with Britain while in this war, while we're in war with them, and you're in this zone, you might get sunk, you know, especially if you're unflagged. The Lusitania was unflagged. They were trying to hide their identity. The Germans knew about the Lusitania and believed that she was carrying war material. They had accused the British of this. This was a violation of treaty as well. If you are a passenger liner, you're not allowed to carry anything for the war effort, else you become a valid military target. Because just because you have civilians and you have, you know, 2,000 artillery shells, you can't use the civilians as a human shield. Not only was it unethical, that was frowned upon, and it violated the British Code of Ethics on Naval Sea that they established as the dominant military power. So as the Lusitania entered the exclusionary zone and entered the coast of Ireland, there was a heavy fog. She had to slow down considerably to not endanger her own well-being. The British Admiralty radioed her, told her, dense fog ahead, submarines in area, hug the coastline, There's a destroyer in the area patrolling. As long as you're around the coast of Ireland, the southeastern coast, you should be okay to proceed. And so that's what the Lusitania did. She figured, okay, it's foggy. There's a destroyer in the area. There's submarines. But as long as we hug the coastline, we'll be okay. She wasn't able to zigzag like you normally do when there's U-boats in the area because of the fog. And she had to slow down. So these were two procedures that were pretty standard. You know, it's hard to get a read for a torpedo, which goes in a straight line, and it's not able to maneuver at this time when you're going, you know, zigzag, serpentine-style positioning. And the Lusitania going slower was also difficult because U-boats were slow machines, and the Lusitania, as I mentioned, is one of the fastest ships on the sea. So if she was just going at full speed to London... There you go, you're safe. Speed is safety. So on May 17th of 1915, that's where we are. The Lusitania in heavy fog, low visibility, at low speed, not zigzagging, with the British Admiralty telling them, hey, everything's going to be fine. U-20, the German Imperial U-Bert, commanded by Walter Schweiger, was lurking off of the coast of Ireland at the same time. He sees a slow-moving large ship off the coast of Ireland. It's not moving quite quick. It's moving in a straight line, and it looks like a military target. And the Lusitania is going straight at him, straight at U-20. This is a perfect opportunity for to hit a military target. This is definitely a destroyer. This is definitely a battleship. They're clearly moving around, and also there is currently some civil strife in Ireland itself. So obviously it would make sense the British having a naval ship around Ireland around the time. So I'm going to fire a volley. I'm going to shoot my torpedoes. I'm going to sink this ship. And that's what they do. Little do they know that they just sank one of the largest and uh, fastest ships, the Lusitania, 
to the bottom of the sea, killing 1,198 people. Many were Americans. And this is a problem for the United States. The United States objects drastically to this. And the Germans, in order to appease the Americans, stop the unrestricted submarine warfare with the U-boats for a few years. But there is a little thought that is popular amongst historians and other people who like to have theories on what the Lusitania really was. And this podcast is going to go into that, that little theory. So the British warned the Lusitania that there were U-boats in the area because they knew there was the U-boat in the area because of Room 40. Now, they were able to play this off to most people like, you know, okay, our ship saw it somewhere or whatever. But they knew the U-boat was in the area, and they didn't tell the Lusitania to leave. They didn't tell it to speed up. They didn't tell it. They were like, eh, just continue. You know, there's a destroyer. But there wasn't a destroyer in the area. You see, the British Admiralty had told the RMS Juno to head north. It was leaving. They uh, redirected it to help support a dreadnought that was leaving a shipyard up near Ireland and heading to Scapa Flow, and they figured that was a more valuable use of that destroyer than defending you know, this area. So they had the only destroyer in the area leave or leaving... Well, they knew the U-boat was in the area. And larger, when the Lusitania got hit by a torpedo, there wasn't one explosion of the torpedo hitting the U, you know, the ship. There were two explosions, one shortly after the other. And surviving passengers and the U-boat noticed that. In fact, the U-boat had radioed back and told the Germans, yes, we sunk a ship carrying war material because it exploded shortly after a torpedo hit. Now, this is where the big conspiracy theory is, because the British deny that there was any war material on. So there's a lot of prevailing theories as to what that second explosion could have been. My professor in college believed that the coal bunkers that lined the side of the ship after the long voyage across the Atlantic were mostly empty. So when the torpedo hit, all the coal dust that had building, been building and building and building for a month had ignited upon the explosion he believed that was what happened now there are other people that believe that there was military material the british were lying you know it was explosives it was artillery shells it was whatever and the british kind of admitted this at a certain point there was you know some rifle cartridges and stuff but nothing that would explode that violently the British did keep this a secret for years, but still, the second explosion is kind of debated, you know. Was it war material? Was it the coal dust? Was it some other factor? Was it a violent decompression of one of the chambers? Was it simply imagined? Was it ever real? Who knows? But the larger thing is, was the Lusitania sunk intentionally? Granted, the Germans sunk it intentionally, but did the British Admiralty sink it intentionally? They knew what passengers were on it. They knew there were Americans on it. They knew there was a U-boat in the area. They knew the Lusitania was in the area. Did they allow it to get sunk? Did they know it would get sunk? Were they trying to draw the Americans in? Remember, this isn't World War II. The British were losing 
you could argue they were starving. The U-boats were incredibly effective at this time. They were kind of struggling at the very least. Argue or not whether they were losing, they were struggling. And getting the Americans to join would have been a giant boost to both them and the French efforts because the Russians were not really helping at all. So did the British intentionally allow the Lusitania to get sunk in an attempt to drag the Americans into the war? There's no definitive answer for this. I can tell you what I believe. Probably. I mean, in the long run, I'm not sure if the British could have predicted that the U-boat would have sank it. Maybe they were hoping, but, you know, there's no guarantee. You know, what if the U-boat didn't have any torpedoes left? They only had three left. They carried seven. They had already fired, you know, a couple off. So they they couldn't have been sure. There, There was no guarantee. I mean, they certainly didn't, like, blow up the Lusitania. It's not that level of conspiracy, but that's the fun of this story. And the best part about it is it's so long ago that almost nobody cares. I mean, I'm sure some British people care, but there's larger conspiracies that are a lot more fun, like Kennedy or anything like that, so... Take that to heart with you. The British might have intentionally killed 2,000 people, but, I mean, I'm, they were doing worse things, to be fair. Thank you for listening to the Cleocast. We really appreciate your listening, and uh, we'll see you next Sunday for another episode, and you'll hear us both, RC and Matt. Go ahead and follow us on Twitter at, at CleoHistory. You can also uh, email us in the email below and check out our ACAST website where you can also find a bunch of our other episodes like the Battle of the Hampton Roads if you're into more naval history or if you like space, we do have an X-15 episode that just came out. Go ahead and check that out and we'll see you next Sunday.